This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, so tune in. And our entire back catalog is available 24-7 via podcast, so just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow wherever you get yours. And please be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXMBusiness, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. So... You guys know, despite the progress that's been made in closing the gender gap, working mothers, even in the C-suite, are still facing significant challenges. My guest today has written a book examining especially the emotional and professional experiences these women have had as they've tried to move forward in their careers while raising a family. She brings great insight into it, her personal experiences, while examining actually two generations of women, and brings us to a point where we can consider how can we navigate this in our lives today, and also what can we change within the organizations that we lead and where we work. So I'm delighted to introduce Joanne Lublin. She's making her second appearance on the show. Her new book is called Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. So Joanne, thanks so much for coming back to Women at Work. Well, thank you for having me. Good title for a show. (laughs) I'm glad you agree. Um, I want to tell the listeners a little more about you before we dive into the book. Joanne's a power mom herself, having raised two kids while blazing trails at the Wall Street Journal, which she joined in 1971. She was a management news editor there until she retired in April 2018, and she's still a regular contributor. She shared its Pulitzer Prize in 2003 for stories about corporate scandals and was awarded, deservedly, the 2018 Lifetime Achievement from the Loeb Awards, the highest accolade in business journalism. She's also the author of Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons for Trailblazing Women at the Top of the business world. So Joanne, you've spent your whole career telling the stories that the world needs to hear. After 40 years of doing this, what made you write this book now? Well, this book is an outgrowth of my first book, which is, as you mentioned, earning it, hard-won lessons from trailblazing women at the top of the business world. And that book looked at 52 high-level corporate executives, women who achieved huge uh, gains in the workplace. And in fact, most of those 52 women became public company CEOs, people like Mary Barra at GM. All but one of those 52 women were boomer moms, uh, boomer executives, that is. Mm -hmm. And most of them were moms. And in fact, more than 80% of those 52 women were mothers. And among those who had become public company CEOs, the proportion was even higher which made me wonder, with encouragement from my publisher, (laughs) what had changed, what was different, to what extent had things gotten better as a younger wave of executives got jobs and were also mothers. And so what I looked at were 86 executive mothers, women who had at some point in their careers worked for a company with at least $100 million in revenue. I didn't care about the size of the company at the point when I talked to them, but they had to be in, had an executive role and also have children. The younger wave were women who were millennials and Gen Xers, 
at the time of my interviews, which nearly all of which occurred in 2019, they had to be under 45. So they ranged in age from early 30s to early 40s. And then to extend this examination of what was different or what had stayed the same, I also interviewed 25 adult daughters of that first wave of the boomer moms to find out not only what had it been like growing up with a mother who was highly successful in the world of business, but to what extent did that alter or influence their perspective on what they wanted to do with their careers and with the choice of whether to be a parent. So Joanne, I've um, often joked, and there's no you know, humor without truth, that I make a contribution to the therapy fund. I make a contribution to the college fund because I never know as a mom um, working as hard as I do where it's going to be more needed, um, particularly as a result of having me as her mother. So talk to me. I'm particularly interested in what you learned. I want to start with the daughters, um, because all of us who are working moms have this fear and this guilt. Um, what it, was the pattern that you saw about the impact of being parented by these extraordinarily hardworking moms? Well, it varied depending on what age I was asking them about. And so, you know, when these young adult women were children or even as they entered middle school, they often did not really understand always what mom did for a living. Um, they they weren't totally sure why she had to work such late hours. Uh, they certainly missed her a lot when she took frequent business trips, which a lot of these highly ambitious uh, executive moms did. As these young women moved into high school, um, many of them began to appreciate, admire, and brag about how important and influential and successful their mom was. But at the same time, being your typical adolescence, as we all went through that stage, resented the fact that she was trying to mold and shape their own career future. Uh, there was one boomer mom who insisted her daughter prepare her LinkedIn profile when she applied for a junior counselor job at a summer camp figuring it was never too early to get ready. <laughs> and so these daughters were not hugely uh, happy when mom wanted them to go to the same college or major in the same major that mom had done, or even think about entering the same profession or industry because they really wanted to kind of feel their own oats mm -hmm. and, 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 and leave the nest. But then when these young women entered college and were looking for summer internships or started interviewing for jobs when they finished their undergraduate and graduate education, they suddenly discovered that mom was their secret weapon because guess what? She knew how the world of work worked. She knew how to detect subtle forms of gender bias. She knew how to open doors. She knew how to network. She could critique their LinkedIn profiles or resumes. She could help them prepare for interviews. And then once they got into the job, she was generally pretty always available when they needed help at managing the ins and outs of getting ahead and being successful at work. To the point that some of these adult daughters said that their friends would say, hey, could your mom look at my LinkedIn profile? So in other words, the same moms whose advice they rejected during that 
period of individuation that some of us are actively going through, um, they actually later discovered mom has mad skills and really can be quite an asset. Um, but it also sounds like despite those those totally understandable feelings in childhood and early adolescence of missing mom and not liking when mom travels, um, that it didn't squelch their own ambition. And some talked about their choices to be stay-at-home moms, but for the most part, it's not as if this is a generation that rebelled and decided not to go into the workplace. That's right. And what is ironic is one of those adult daughters, Mindy Grossman's daughter, who is the CEO of WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, did choose to become a stay-at-home mom, but is very involved with volunteer work as well as, you know, keeping her own self in pretty good shape. And what I found pretty ironic when I talked to her is that she suffered stay-at-home mom guilt whenever she would leave what was then her one child because she was pregnant with her second when she'd leave her toddler with her grandmother to go take a yoga class or some other kind of enrichment activity. The other thing to that point about working mother guilt is that the moms, the boomer moms, did not have the same perspective of things that had happened when their children were growing up as the daughters did in terms of it causing guilt. There was this one situation which did not make it into the book where the mom had to be out of town for the 12-year-old on the 12-year-old daughter's birthday because she had an out-of-town team off-site meeting. And she was so guilty over the fact she couldn't be physically present for her daughter's birthday that she insisted on calling her daughter and putting it on conference call mode so everybody in the room could sing happy birthday to this girl. <laughs> now, she was home, you know, for the party. And so when I asked the daughter what she remembered about the 12-year-old birthday, celebration she said oh well you know we had the party as we always did on Saturday because what working mother ever celebrates her kids birthdays during the week and it was a great party because mom made her usual wonderful birthday cake and we all had a blast and at this point it's 15 years after the fact the daughter's 27 the mother's still giving herself this hard time over having been out of town on the actual day and I said to the daughter, well, you know, your mom remembers being out of town on your birthday because it was the middle of the week. And the daughter was, really? Hmm, I didn't remember that. Okay, so that suggests two things to me. So one is that sometimes we're um, beating ourselves up more than we really need to. Um, way too much, way too much. <laughs> but, that when, but that we also all have these experiences. So in, in the moment, and particularly for the generation now who's really experiencing this, um, what advice do you have to help women deal with that guilt and process it? Well, I think there's lots of things that we can do to deal with working mother guilt. And so I devoted an entire chapter to that topic. Uh, and it's 10 different hacks that I cold from talking to these 86 women. The idea for that chapter came from one of the boomer moms. And she was someone I had actually interviewed for earning it in which I had one chapter about being a working mom. And a quote from her became the title of that chapter. And that chapter was called Manager Moms Are Not Acrobats. And one of the hacks that she suggested that gets incorporated into that chapter is this whole notion of essentially accepting our imperfections and being grateful for what we do 
do with our children. And so when we once again are sitting down for dinner with our children and our spouse, and it's seven o'clock on a weeknight, rather than give ourselves a hard time about, OMG, it's seven o'clock already and we're not eating, give yourself a pat on the back about the fact that, isn't this great? I'm having dinner with my family. Another uh, hack that she suggested was to involve your kids in your work life. So educate them not only about what it is you do for a living, but why it is it's important to you and what things you are doing that give you pride and joy in your work role. And make sure they understand why you do have to go on that business trip because business travel is going to start coming back pretty soon and women are going to be traveling again for work. And make sure that the kids have some kind of input in perhaps to the extent you have that flexibility, what day you come back so you don't miss that important game or that important appearance in a school play. So Joanna, in doing all of that, one of the things um, it enables us to do, encourages us to do, is not only peel back the curtain on the reality that we're living when our kids aren't with us. Like for years, my, my daughter just said, you just go into a meeting, you talk to people, you come out of a meeting. That's what you do all day. But she didn't understand what happens in those meetings. Um, and how old's your daughter now? May now she's 19 and she has a much better okay. grasp of what I do. Um, okay. But, you know, during the years I would disappear and she wouldn't know why. So part of it's about peeling back the curtain. But the other thing is about it lets us like bring your daughter to work day. It's about holding ourselves and each other up as role models. Um, Right. But the boomer moms never felt comfortable about um, being open about what they did for a living or even talking to their colleagues about their children. And, and so it would have been rare for them to bring a daughter to work before there was bring your daughter to work day, M much less educate their daughters or sons about what they did and why they liked it, because they were trying so hard to be taken for seriously and rather than being taken as someone who had split loyalty. And in that, there's this schism of can we inhabit our ambition and talk about our ambition out loud? And also, can we um, talk in the same spaces where we try to be ambition, harness the aspect of ourselves that are also mothers? How do you see this generation navigating those two things that somehow it's like you can't win for losing? The generation before got hurt on both fronts. And I think it's because the generation before got hurt on both fronts, but persevered and ultimately succeeded because they got these big jobs and raised some pretty spectacular offspring. I think that they served not only as role models, but as sponsors for those younger women to make sure that they don't have to give up one in order to have the other. And so that's why it's great that you have, you know, lots of companies now where there are a significant number of women in senior level roles who are also serving as role models for men as to the fact that it's important that we have two sides to our lives because being good parents make us good bosses. Absolutely. And I'm... And I'm struck by a story I did for the journal, Wall Street Journal, you know, unrelated to the book, in which I looked at what difference did it make when there were multiple women direct reports to the CEO. And in one case, the head of HR 
decided when her son entered his senior year of high school that she was going to leave work every Thursday at five o'clock and take him out to dinner because he was about to leave the nest and she wanted to bond with him in his senior year of high school. Rather than just telling her direct reports or her colleagues who were all directly reporting to the CEO, she did a company-wide blog saying, you're not going to find me after five o'clock on Thursday for the next nine months. And essentially laying out why it was important to her to build that deeper tie with her son. And she got a huge amount of positive reinforcement, not just from women in the rank and file, but from men saying, you know, you're essentially walking the talk about the fact that we value families. Um, by the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And my guest today is the extraordinary Joanne Lublin. And we're talking about her new book, Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. So Joanne, I want to ask about you for a minute in this regard, because you've written about a lot of extraordinary moms. You share a little bit about yourself in the book. How did you navigate your own ambition? Um, and especially as I think the first woman writer in the newsroom at the Wall Street Journal? No, I was not. Okay, you weren't the first, but you were in a small no. group. How did was you a small group. Um, own your ambition? I mean, you were smart, capable, went to Stanford, Northwestern. Um, how did you learn to inhabit that in yourself without um, feeling the need to shrink away from it in mixed company? Well, I don't think it was easy at all. I was the first woman hired as a full-time reporter in the San Francisco Bureau. There were already about a dozen women in the news department at the Wall Street Journal at that time. The highest ranking woman at the journal at that time was a copy editor. And when she became engaged to a higher level editor at the paper, they called in both the man and the woman and stared at her and said, well, you know, we have a nepotism policy. One of you is going to have to quit. And they did not look at him at all. Uh, and so she did quit. Um, in my own case, it was very difficult to get accepted uh, as a female journalist, even though, as it turns out, there have been women journalists in the United States since the Civil War. But particularly in a business publication, um, I would call up sources and try and get interviews and people would think I was selling subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal or that I was a secretary. And in fact, sometimes when I would answer my phone, <laughs> this happened for years afterwards, they would say, may I please speak to your boss, Miss Lublin? And I'd say, a just a minute. No, I wouldn't. I would say, no, you've got, you've, you've got her. And, and the irony was that after I had been at the Wall Street Journal for two years, I, I got honorable mention in the local press club annual journalism contest. And the San Francisco Press Club, this is the early 70s, remember, like many press clubs across the country and many business clubs did not admit women. And I had by that point educated the, my male colleagues about where I stood on feminism. And they all said, oh, you must boycott this dinner because you know they don't admit women as members, even though you could obviously get prizes in their journalism contest. <laughs> and, and I said, um, you know, non, mes frères, you are wrong. <laughs> if I am ever going to convince or other women are going to convince press clubs to let women in as members, we have to show up. And we have to show up in numbers and we have to go to the awards dinner. And I did. And of course, several years later, they did admit women uh, as members there and in press clubs all over the all over the country. But to the point of, you know, how did I make sure that my ambition did not clash with my desire to have a family? It didn't. 
It did clash. When I was in my late 20s and working in the Chicago Bureau, I was now a star reporter at the Journal. And there were two other, uh, a couple other male reporters in the Bureau who were also superstars. And the male bureau chief at that time asked the guys and me if we wanted to be bureau chiefs as our next uh, step in our journal careers. Now, this was a time in which the Wall Street Journal had never had a female bureau chief. I knew no women at the newspaper who had children. There may have been some. They certainly weren't very vocal or visible. And I was married to a journalist who was working for Business Week. And I knew that the Wall Street Journal, as a rule, gave their maiden or novice bureau chiefs very small bureaus. And so the chances of being sent to Cleveland or Philadelphia, where the Business Week folks did not have bureaus, was probably pretty great. I worried that uh, my marriage wouldn't survive. We were also at that point thinking that maybe we might want to have a child at some point. It wasn't really uh, as, you know, crystallized to the point that we were giving up practicing birth control. But again, I thought, well, I can't possibly be a manager and a mom. But the mistake I made was I all that flashed through my head in about 30 seconds. I did not say to the beer chief, let me have a day or two to think about it. In 10 seconds, I had ruled it out and I said, not now, maybe later. And I never did become a bureau chief. Um, I'm going to gather that if you were doing this again, you might have had a different answer. Well, not only would I have a different answer, but when it came time to retire from the journal from full-time work three years ago, I was asked to write a letter to my younger self. And you can go online and and look it up. Uh, It's gotten a huge amount of buzz at the time, and people still tell me they read it. And what it was, it was a letter to 22-year-old Joanne on her first day at the Wall Street Journal, looking back now at that point, almost 47 years later on, here's what I wish I had known when I started. And one of them was, I wish I had known that I actually had the option to think or to ask for some time before making a critical career decision, which I didn't do, okay? I also did not understand that there were unwritten rules of the workplace. I didn't understand that I had to figure out how to be accepted by the guys. And in my case, while I didn't like sports, there were a lot of guys in that office in Chicago who played bridge. So I learned to play bridge. But I also subsequently learned at the time I was writing that essay that while I was in that bureau, the bureau chief at one point invited the guys over for drinks at his house and didn't invite me. Uh, And after I had moved out of the bureau to Washington, uh, there were then more women in the bureau and they made sure the next time he had drinks at his house that the women got invited too. (laughs) So you were even changing things then (laughs) while you were navigating all of this. It, um, one of the things that you said that's stunning to me was even in your own mind, that idea, could you be a mother and a manager? And those two things seemed incongruent where you've now shown us all of these women who do both all the time. When did you start to see that you could um, integrate those things more substantially and that it was a viable thing in your life um, to be seen as a leader, to take on real responsibility, even if you weren't a bureau chief? Because you certainly, you know, as you can see online, there's a delightful tribute to you. Um, The role that you played in nurturing colleagues and setting standards that you were seen as a senior person at the journal. So at some point, these things had to have integrated for you. Yes. And I did get into management. I ultimately became the deputy bureau chief in London. 
And the irony is that the woman who chose me as her deputy was the woman who did become the first female bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal, Kathy Christensen. And she became the, the bureau chief in Boston. Um, she herself did not ever have children, however, um, but we made a great team. And at that point, when I moved to London, I had two children. I had a almost four-year-old and a seven-year-old. But when I was uh, looking to go out on maternity leave ahead of our daughter's birth in 1983, I thought it was going to be difficult to work full-time with two kids under four. And so I proposed, I was in the Watson Bureau at the time, I proposed a four-day schedule. I offered to give up 20% of my pay, 20% of my benefits. At that time, my bureau chief was someone who had a stay-at-home wife. He reported to a managing editor who also had a stay-at-home wife. And so my bureau chief took a neutral position on my proposal and just sent it along to New York, and it was turned down. So I did come back to work full-time. I found it very stressful, very demanding. And when our daughter was less than a year old, the Wall Street Journal published a front-page story about working moms who had gone back to work and a couple of years later threw in the towel, decided it was too hard, and they were going to stay home and raise their children. Well, by that time, we had a new managing editor, a guy named Norm Perlstein, um, who had a working wife. And I had a new bureau chief, a guy named Al Hunt, who happens to be married to Judy Woodruff, and they already had a son. And the managing editor emailed me and asked me what I thought of that front page story. And I said, boy, I could really relate to that. I'm really struggling to, to do this. And in fact, I asked for a four-day week, but it got turned down when I came back from maternity leave. And he was like, really? Oh, yeah, send me the proposal. And, you know, to my delight, Al Hunt was totally in favor of it. Norm Perlstein said, great. I did not know anybody else at the, at the paper who had that kind of a schedule. And then the frosting on the cake was they decided that they were going to give me the four-day-a-week schedule without a reduction in pay or in benefits. And when I later interviewed Al Hunt for the book, I said to him, you know, that was just amazing. I was so grateful. Why'd you do that? And he said, we were afraid you would quit and go work for the competition. That is such a spectacular story on multiple fronts. So in the first half, we you were touching base on a particular CEO who was navigating a personal need to spend more time with her um, high school son in those precious years right before he left for school, where um, she decided, I'm going to stop working at five o'clock on Thursdays to spend more time with him and made that clear in a kind of radical way to the organization that was actually received with some success. To me, that resonates in that um, place of culture starts at the top. Um, yet at the same time that we know that women who are CEOs are setting culture, they have a tremendous amount of influence. I also am under the suspicion that it's been very hard for them to change culture in ways that serve working moms while they're also struggling to be taken seriously as women CEOs. How have you seen that arc for the women that you interviewed? Where are the, the breakthrough moments when it's okay for them to really change that culture internally? And what's behind it? Well, the example I cited earlier was not a CEO. She was a CHRO. She was the head of human resources reporting to a CEO. But nevertheless, I did interview a number of women for Power Moms um, who are CEOs. And in some cases, they are CEOs of startups. 
And so if you are both the founder and the CEO or co-founder and CEO, I think you have a huge amount of influence on shaping the corporate culture, on setting the tone at the top. And I think Jen Hyman is the epitome of that. She is the co-founder and CEO of Rent the Runway. And while at the outset, she did not extend family-friendly benefits company-wide, she limited them to salaried employees because she said that's what all the other companies she knew did. In 2018, she did extend what were very family-friendly benefits to hourly workers as well, because she understood that a lot of them were struggling and probably even to a greater degree than the salaried employees were with the need to have paid family leave, whether it was for parenthood or for other issues. But the other thing she noticed is even though they had very generous parental leave policies that extended to fathers and mothers, that there were relatively few new dads who were taking advantage of this because of this pervasive unconscious bias that we have in our society about what it is is the perfect mom and what makes the perfect dad. And so when her chief technology officer, a guy, was getting ready to go out on parental leave because his wife was having a baby, she insisted that he take the full amount that he was eligible for and that he also broadcast this and make sure that everybody in the company knew what he was doing and how long he was going to be away. And when I interviewed her for the book, she said there hadn't been a single new dad since the CTO came back to work who had failed to take his parental leave. And in her own case, she also walked the talk. Uh, she took multi-month leaves uh, after the birth of each of her daughters. When I interviewed her, she was pregnant with her second daughter and in fact was in the midst of doing a huge amount of another round of fundraising. And to the point I raised with her is, which is, isn't it hard for female founders to, you know, get the attention of venture capitalists? She said that hadn't been her experience, and it certainly wasn't her experience, even though she was very visibly pregnant. And it's because success was speaking for itself in that case. And I think that at the end of the day is why so many of these younger power moms, and especially those who are CEOs of their own companies, are very confident uh, about not only the fact that you can be a successful executive and a successful parent, but are very confident about the fact they know that they can act as superb role models for everyone else in the company, men and women alike. So it's so encouraging to hear these stories, especially that come from founders and they're creating new companies with new cultures. Um, but what about the women who are in these senior leadership roles in older, more traditional um, companies, um, global firms, where in many cases they're reporting into very demanding boards where representation of women, um, let's just say they're somewhat underrepresented on many of those boards. How do they deal with that culture clash, especially when they're the ones Ones who want to start changing it? Well, they do it by allyship. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if women who are ambitious, whether it's on the home front or the work front, do not have male allies, they're never going to achieve any of their goals. And what happens is to the extent that men are educated to know that it's not a zero sum game that to the extent that women succeed, men succeed too, then we are going to have greater alliances within the workplace. But too often, men think that, that if women are 
promoted that the men are somehow the losers. And yet, as you know, there's been extensive academic research suggesting that the more women there are in management and the more women there are on boards, the more the companies are highly successful. And so I think that the way you make change is by building alliances around critical issues, not around every issue, but around those that are the ones that make a difference. And if that means making the corporate sponsor of the parental employee resource group, uh, the male CFO rather than the female CHRO, that's one way to do it. And Educate so them, expose them, and let them help everybody else rise up with them. So from that position, that powerful perch, um, the allyship goes across to other leadership. And then it also, as we learn, taking a cue from um, Rent the Runway, is if you start to mentor the people under you, make very clear where these policy applies to them and how they can be seen as role models, it winds up that it sounds like that's the way to affect cultural change in the multiple directions that it needs to go if it's really going to fundamentally reboot how that organization embraces working parents. But at the same time, there has to be leadership uh, from the male executive. And so the last chapter of the book, which looks at how to make work more workable for working mm -hmm. parents. I profiled several pace setter companies that I think have gone above and beyond in terms of trying to make work more workable for parents. And one of those companies is American Express, where not only did they make their parental leave very generous, but they sent a very strong message about the importance of men taking their full parental leave by having senior male leaders not only talk about having taken the leave, but hosting breakfasts and other programs for would-be dads and talking about how their careers had benefited from this. And so to the extent that it is a, a cultural norm to do this, and in the case of American Express, it's now five months of paid leave, then it becomes less threatening for the guy to ask for that and to take advantage of what is due to him. There was this great example in the book where this uh, younger executive mom, her domestic partner has just started at McKinsey uh, at the point when she's about to give birth to their twin boys and they already have a, a toddler son. Uh, and he doesn't want to ask for the, the the parental leave that he is due because he's the new guy on the block. And there are very few guys in his group that have done it. And the ones who've done it all joke about coming back right away or really, you know, doing work while they're supposedly home with the baby. And so he just doesn't feel so, it's socially acceptable, especially as the new guy on the block to do so. And so we have to change the norms of expected behavior not just for women, but for men. So one of the things you were talking about earlier is that one of the impulses like um, offering exceptional benefits, but only to salaried employees is anchored in the business case of attracting talent um, and drawing it to the company. Increasingly, and I hope increasingly after people read your book, there's a growing understanding that um, as talent is seeking, um, the right organization for them, the place that's the right fit. Where do they want to land and invest? Um, they're on the outside looking in, though. They don't yet know who's going to be advocating for them, what the culture of their own team is going to be like. Um, what can 
um, talent to look at, peer into to get a sense of what the culture is within an organization so that they can position themselves as best as possible for that a, a, a mutually beneficial long haul? Well, I think it's very important to do a deep dive before you change employers, whatever your family status might be. And so that deep dive has to mean you go beyond looking at the slick promotional videos on the recruiting website that show lots of warm and fuzzy pictures of employees right. playing catch with their children. And that means you have to do your same kind of exploration and investigation that you would do for any kind of business assignment in which you find out you know, what are the upsides and downsides? Who are the people that have been in that job before? What are all the various social media outlets or you know, job sites saying about what it's like to work there? Connecting with people on LinkedIn and Facebook who have not only worked there before, but have worked for the person that you're going to work for. Uh, finding out what it, the person is who you work for in terms of their reputation as far as relating to the needs of individuals with young children. Maybe that would-be boss doesn't have children, him or herself, but has proven to be a very empathetic leader in many other ways. There are all kinds of things you could do. You could find out if they have employee resource groups for parents and talk to the leaders of that about is the company actually walking the talk or is it just pretending and giving lip service to these things. And what is the evidence in terms of employee survey results as to how people feel about what it's like to work there and what those benefits are and to the extent they're actually used. You know, for many, many years, companies offered things like flexible hours or work from home arrangements. And there were relatively few who took advantage of it because people were afraid this would somehow brand them as less than committed or less than interested in advancing their careers. Of course, now we've had this 15-month experiment in working from home under the pandemic limitations, and we have proven that both of those are not only acceptable, but they're doable, and there are productive ways of working. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I wanted to ask you about. You've watched business change over many years and helped us understand it. Um, when you look at the arc that we've just gone through, where remote work was an option, some moms, including I used it years before there was even a term for it. Um, what do you see as, um, what are you, where are you placing your bets going forward on what remote work looks like and um, what the, in these moments when we start to go back in, um, what should leaders be paying attention to to help us get there and retain working moms? And what do you think parents should be looking at as they go back? Well, to the second half of your question, I think parents have to be looking back to seeing whether employers actually are fulfilling their commitments to remote work. And the way employers then can demonstrate that to those employees and would be future employees is by making work from home a permanent and viable alternative arrangement that has built-in structures that make it possible to advance your career. And whether that means that you are getting a coach that is going to advise you on how to be seen and be visible and to be noticed, 
and to know when to raise your hand and when to know it is not good for you career-wise or family-wise, um, that would speak volumes. Um, I think that bosses have to be willing to do more frequent check-ins with their individuals on their teams who are, are working parents, because guess what? As the school year evolves, their needs to be available for their children are gonna change. As their children get older, their needs are gonna change. And those employees are not always necessarily going to be comfortable about expressing their, their, their needs. The same thing when it comes to flexible hours. Uh, it has to be something that is actually not just tolerated, but encouraged. And the way you do that is you measure people on their results. You don't measure them as to what time of day they are uh, working. Um, and the, that let them choose their, their, their hours. It, it comes down to being paid for results, not paid for, for when you're making FaceTime. One of those companies that I highlighted in the last chapter, PwC, one of the things that they did during the pandemic is they offered their employees the opportunity to designate certain hours during the workday as protected hours. And the employees got to choose, and in many cases chose the hours during the day when they were schooling or helping their kids with schooling from home. And therefore, that was recognizing not only the fact that these individuals who have kids have needs that transcend the workplace, but that the employer is acknowledging that it is possible to parent and to be successful on the job. But I also think employers, and I'm encouraged to see that this uh, there's a, a, a new coalition just formed in support of caregiving. I think co that coalition and other coalitions of employers need to be fighting in favor of the legislation that the Biden administration has proposed that would include 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. Because the United States remains one of the few countries in the industrialized world that lacks paid family and medical leave. And so until that becomes the norm on a nationwide basis, even though it is true in some states, it's gonna to remain to be a difficult issue for many working couples, especially when that first child arrives. Without a doubt. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zara. I'm talking with Joanne Lublin, author of Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. Joanne, in that, in the answer that you just provided, there was a lot in there. So I want to unpack a few pieces of it. Sure. Um, one of them is that there's obviously a discrepancy in the challenges that different parents face. Some of that's about their um, own family needs, elder care, child care, unique needs of children um, brought into, made exponentially worse by the pandemic. Um, and then there's also the difference of where the parents themselves are in the pecking order of the organization and also how affluent they are. Um, with the women that obviously in leadership positions, they enjoy, um, and have worked hard for an affluence that helps them solve problems in a different way. Um, what do you recommend that organizations start doing for the women who don't and the parents who don't have those resources to hire nannies, to make sure that somebody, that they can bring in the resources to manage their lives while they're working what seems to be almost endless hours? It's, it's a huge problem. And I do think that the smarter companies out there 
are cognizant of it. And it's reflected in how they have reacted in terms of dealing with their employees lower down in the pecking order and throughout the company during COVID. Um, I'd like to go back to PwC again, which frankly got into that last chapter because they were pay setters in terms of meeting the needs of working parents with a mentor mom program that they created in 2008 in which women who had already come back to work and had had children became mentors to women when they were expecting, when they were on leave and when they returned to work. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit and forced lots of people to stay home, one of the things that PwC did was they offered employees a six-month leave and also gave them 20% pay. Additionally, they doubled their $2,000 reimbursement for backup childcare. And this whole notion of companies subsidizing or even creating childcare facilities or increasing the uh, benefit for emergency or backup childcare is an absolutely critical, critical need um, for companies where most of their workforce do not have the affluence to afford a nanny. I know of some other companies that created virtual day camps uh, mm-hmm. for their employees' children. Yeah, it was um, a really and, innovative solution last summer. Right, or or created uh, virtual tutoring programs or subsidized <laughs> um, the, 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 the tutoring or, or helped employees create learning pods um, in which families would combine and, and then take turns as to which house um, the, the, the kids were studying from. By the, the same no, notion, it's possible to, to share a nanny. A multiple family sharing a nanny becomes a, an easier financial burden to bear than one family only having to, to employ that. Doing it's amazing as you go through that list and you share what PwC did to see the creativity that's there, the range of options, particularly when you look at policy as a tool, um, an internal organizational policy, never mind federal policy. Um, but another one of the tools that's embedded in this—that's how we got through the pandemic. But I have to say, I've got a real love-hate relationship with it—is my technology. Um, I know that in when my daughter was three, four, five years old, and I negotiated for a reduced load, I took Mondays and Fridays to work from home. I took a 40% pay cut, still somehow found myself working all the time, but I stayed in the game, got promoted. And at the time, I thought it was largely because I had a laptop. And I was able to work while she was napping, catch up on things. It kept me connected at a time when a lot of other working mothers hadn't had that advantage. Fast forward, my technology, like many others, is eating us alive. Um, My daughter at various points was like, would you please put the phone away? Um, Talk to me about how you see, what are the best practices that you see out there for leveraging technology to stay in the game um, while not having it take over our lives? Well, I also have a really important chapter in the book called Always On that looks at this, and it is from the vantage point of having been reported before the pandemic, but this pressure to be always on, to be reachable 24-7, I think has only intensified to the extent that we in the white-collar workforce have been working from home, because when you're sleeping at the office, it's hard to not be at work all the time. (laughs) And and yet it's part of what Atlantic Magazine calls the culture of workism. We worship at the altar of workism. 
And, and I blame the tech industry for having fostered this culture pre-pandemic. But during the pandemic, it's become more important than ever to not be tethered to our technology at all times. I, I was surprised at how many of the younger executive moms slept with their cell phones or with their smartphones turned on or at least on vibrate. And, you know, there's got to be a point where you say enough already and, and where you, you draw a line in the sand. And one of the things I did last summer when the book was already on its at the printing plant is I revisited with three women who were working remotely before the pandemic struck, who were interviewed for the book, who now, of course, were working remotely, but with their kids underfoot. And in one case, this executive who had been working from home, but now had her two kids in the house, she's the one who told her employer, which had an all remote workforce pre-pandemic, that she needed protected hours. And she decided when it was that she wouldn't be always on. And it was between 7 and 11 a.m. every workday. And she just said, you're not going to be able to find me. I don't care if the world's on fire. Now, another uh, uh, approach that some executive uh, women have taken is to get either a second smartphone that is their essentially emergency phone that is one that you know can only be reached in an emergency when they're off hours, or to get a second phone line on their current smartphone that is the same thing, so that they are unreachable unless the world is at its end. So I, just in the few minutes we have left, you mentioned earlier how important it is to be visible, stay visible, connect with each other. Part of navigating all this technology and remote work or even hybrid work is carving out space for ourselves and the importance of letting employees call those shots. What can we do to help those employees who need to be in the driver's seat about drawing their own boundaries to protect themselves to also create a culture and a construct to help them connect with each other? Well, you can do both. And, and you do it, again, from the same vantage point we were talking about earlier, which is that tone at the top. And so you have companies like Zillow, okay? Zillow recently decided that there would be every workday a four-hour block of time called core collaborative hours. And that meant there are no Zoom calls allowed during those four collaborative hours block of the day. And so you essentially institutionalize this notion of it's okay to not be reachable. But at the same time, it is important that people know how to connect with each other. And so for those parents who are gonna continue working from home, they need to hone their virtual networking skills. They need to have that virtual coffee ahead of the important meeting to make sure they built alliances and people will speak up who are physically in the room on their behalf for their favorite cause or budget item. Joanne, as always, you are full of insight, perspective, and excellent advice. For people who wanna dive into the book or learn more about you, where can they go? Your best resource is to look at my website, which is joannelublin.com, and it will give you lots of helpful hints for ordering it from an online retailer you like. Fantastic, Joanne. Thank you for joining us and for all the amazing work you keep doing. 
And thank you for everyone for joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. New episodes premiere on Thursday at 9 a.m. and our whole back catalog is available. Just search on podcasts wherever you get yours. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this has been Women at Work on Sirius XM Channel 132. Have a great week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 